What's up, everyone, and welcome to Through the Veil. I am your host, Alex Nelson, and on today's episode, we have my dear friend, Sarah Howitt. Sarah is a psychedelic facilitator, trip guide, and trip sitter, as well as doing a myriad of other beautiful things. She is someone that I've known for quite a while through the Fit for Service Mastermind, and really has been a huge ally in my life as I've been, you know, continuing to deepen and and understand my own practice of facilitation. She's someone who really has a a deep and nuanced understanding of what it takes to guide someone safely through a psychedelic journey. So we cover a whole bunch of topics, but we talk a lot about psychedelics today. So buckle in. I hope you enjoy this episode. And if you do, please consider sharing it with a friend or a family member who you think could use some of this information. Sharing out the episode is the quickest way to help me grow the show. And we're going to be back to a little bit more consistent episodes now than I am settled into Austin, Texas, finally. So much love, y'all. Hope you enjoy the episode, and I'll catch you on the other side. There we go. Well, welcome to the podcast, Sarah. I'm happy to have you here. Um, If you can just introduce yourself and tell the audience a little bit about who you are, what you do, and then we'll take it from there. My name is Sarah Howitt, and I'm a human and also a coach and a ceremony facilitator and a prep and integration specialist for psychedelic work. That's it. (laughs) But mostly a human, 100% human mostly human um yeah awesome so you know for context for people listening you and i met in fit for service in 2020 was it yeah 2020 2020 Mm -hmm. must have been and we've got to know each other over the years and both run in very similar uh veins of what we do um so i'd love to hear just as we start off here a little bit about your story of just because you've done a bunch of different stuff, first of all, which I probably haven't even heard 50% of. So I'm personally curious to hear some of your story and then, you know, dovetailing into what you've been doing now. So sort of what was the arc of your history, you know, work-wise, life-wise, location-wise, and then how has that morphed into where you are now and what you do now? Mm -hmm. That's quite an extensive question. Um, like all the time you need. <laughs> so when I, I always, I feel like the best place to start is when I was 16, I had a child that I placed for adoption mm. and had an open adoption. So chose to, you know, know the family and meet the family ahead of time. And that was really my first apprenticeship with grief Mm. and which is something that i work with a lot now i do a lot of grief processing for clients and grief rituals and things like that um i you know because i got pregnant at a young age i was in therapy from a really young age so started going to a therapist when i was about 14 and then had my son when i was 16 placed him for adoption Mm. you know that that was a uh a difficult and profoundly challenging, but also beautiful part of my life story, my, my history and, and a big learning process for me, of course. 
And um, I knew from a young age that I wanted to help people, you know, um, and I saw the power that therapy had. And at that time, it seemed like to admit that you went to a therapist was like kind of like not many people would admit that, you know, like, oh, yeah, you know, I see my therapist. It was kind of <laughs> kind of under the breath. And when I left college, I um, so I went to college, I got an undergrad in marketing and ended up getting a job straight out of college at a financial company, not doing marketing, <laughs> doing a work for like a mutual fund company, doing trading of mutual funds and things like that. And great company, great people, but just I knew that that wasn't my path. And so that was really kind of the start of my awakening to my purpose process, you know, where I started to really dive into why am I here and what am I good at? What am I passionate about? So I ended up going back to grad school for couples and family therapy. I really wanted to work with people to bring healing back to families and to couples. And uh, about a semester before I graduated college, I had like two classes left and I dropped out because my husband and I at the time, my husband at the time and I ended up opening a little craft brewery in Denver, Colorado called Black Project. Actually, when we opened it, it was called Former Future. And then we pivoted uh, halfway through that process and turned it into Black Project, became super successful. Um, we kind of became like a collector's uh, brewery, you know, like you hear about people collecting wine. Yeah. Same thing for beer. You know, people get real like they get really into their beer. And, My dad um, is one of those people. <laughs> yeah. 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 You know, like what hops are you putting in this? And where'd you get, you know, is the fruit organic and all of that? And um, so we were traveling really all over the world selling this beer. Uh, we were doing festivals in Iceland and Barcelona and France and Sweden and Mexico and all over the place, all over the country and all over the world. And that became such a huge part of my identity. You know, I dropped out of grad school to pursue that work because it occurred to me that my purpose was not so much as a therapist, but it was a, to be a leader of some kind. And so that was really starting to fill, fill my cup, you know, as it relates to my purpose. But my identity got really wrapped in that. And um, we were, you know, kind of like celebrity status within that industry. I mean, we'd go to airports um, as we would be traveling for different festivals and things, and people would recognize us at the airport and like, oh, James and Sarah, you know, and they'd like rip open their hoodie and they'd have their Black Project shirt on. And um, and I had like a platform and a voice in that industry. You know, I was very well, our brewery was very well respected and I was well respected for the most part. And um, when my husband and I got divorced, that was a huge uh, turning point for me. We got divorced in 2018 and, um, you know, I fought really hard to keep that business and, uh, at least to try to co-parent, yeah. <laughs> co-parent the business and it didn't end up working out. And so that was a really big pivot for me to start to revisit, okay, well, what am I here for? What's my purpose? Yeah. And there was a lot of grief in that because there was so much of my identity wrapped up in that brewery. And so at that point, that was right around the time, right before we got divorced, um, we tried psychedelics together for the first time. We did a little, little mushroom ceremony with some friends. And having, 
I had been, I mean, I'd been in therapy from the time I was 14 all the way through, you know, my early twenties being single and then all the way through my marriage. And I did, I did mushrooms for the first time. And I just thought to myself, wow, this really is like 10 years worth of therapy in mm -hmm. a single night, like truly, truly. Yeah. And so when I, when we went through the divorce and we split the business up, I sold my shares of the business back to him. And I thought, okay, well, I want to go back into the therapy field, but I don't want to go through all like the kind of red tape and bureaucracy and all of that. And so I decided to pursue coaching and I got a certification through a company called being true to you mm -hmm. to work with psychedelics, do psychedelic prep and integration therapy or not therapy, but coaching. Yeah. And, uh, that was really a springboard for me. That was kind of working in tandem with, um, this kind of spiritual awakening that I was having around the time that we met in 2020. And throughout the last few years, I've spent a lot of time um, doing my own, you know, inner work, my own healing work. And, um, and also, sorry, my, um, yeah, I'm going to take these off. I think my headphones are going to die. Can you hear me? Okay. Yeah. Sounds good. Yeah. Okay. And, um, so around that point or around, around that time, I started doing my own inner work with, um, ayahuasca, peyote, mushrooms, kind of all the different, uh, realms of psychedelics and started to help out other people that were facilitating ceremonies. And it's just been, I mean, there's so many different layers and threads and stories that are woven into this, but it's really taken me down this path of, um, coming closer to the truth of who I am. And in that work, um, I've learned a lot about myself and about grief specifically. I mentioned that earlier. Um, I do a lot of grief work and I find that underneath a lot of these layers of what people hold is often grief mm -hmm. of some form or another. And, um, so that's become kind of my specialty and the thing that I enjoy most, the type of work that I enjoy most is working with people in their grief along with the psychedelic work, of course. Yeah. Beautiful. Thank you for sharing. Yeah. That's a grief is definitely something I want to double click into because that is a topic that I of course find interesting as well. As I watch people go through psychedelic journeys, go through coaching journeys, of course, as well. And it's really this unexpressed emotion for so many people. And it is the, the way that they have strapped the baggage to themselves most tightly is this emotion so i'd love to hear you just riff on what is grief what do you see in people who are holding grief what are the most common sort of threads you see relating to grief and then we'll dive into that mm -hmm. well you know as i mentioned with the open adoption of my son that was really my first, what Fran Francis Weller is, is there's a book by a, a guy named Francis Weller called The Wild Edge of Sorrow. And he, he calls it the apprenticeship with grief. And at some point in our lives, we all will have an apprenticeship with grief. That might be the death of a loved one. It could be a loss of a career. It could be a um, loss in a, of an identity. It could be a health issue, like a chronic health issue. And at some point in our lives, we're all going to face one of those that we haven't already. Now we all know grief as it relates to loss, a death of a loved one, 
loss of a family home to a fire, um, again, some sort of terminal illness. Mm -hmm. But what people often forget is that there are other types of grief that perhaps aren't so uh, easily identifiable, mm -hmm. you know? And I think the big one that's been coming up for me, so Francis Weller lays out five, what he calls gates of grief. So there's um, everything we love, we will lose. That's mm -hmm. kind of the one that everybody knows. There's um, the parts of us that have not known love. Mm -hmm. That's a big one. And I'll, I'll circle back to this in a minute. Yeah. There is the sorrows of the world which mm -hmm. is collective grief could be environmental it could be what's happening with the c word i won't say it if you're gonna <laughs> COVID. <laughs> <laughs> exactly mm. um could be anything that we're facing kind of as a collective mm -hmm. um there is what we expected but did not receive mm -hmm. which is a big one and there's ancestral grief and ancestral grief is an interesting one because I do believe that we carry traumas, you know, inside of us, memories of traumas and things like this. And there's also this aspect of ancestral grief that is, you know, when you're born into the world, on some level, there's like an expectation for the world that you've been born into. And for most of us, that expectation has not been met. And so I think, you know, when you're asking about threads and things like this, I think the main one that I have come up against recently has been what we expected and did not receive. Mm -hmm. And also the places that have not known love. Yeah. And there's this, I, I wish I would have brought the book with me. I'm, I'm traveling right now, but there's this great passage in his book where he talks about how there are these parts of us that have been unacknowledged um, for many of us there are these different parts of us that have been unacknowledged that we have felt shame around or um, have had some trauma around and if those parts of us stay kind of locked away and hidden away by the time we actually start to welcome those parts of ourselves back back into us back home into us there is grief there because you suddenly realize how uh imprisoned you've been to some degree and then for you know what we ex what you expected but did not receive i don't know a single person i don't know one person mm. that could honestly tell me that they are living the life that they expected to live mm. especially as it relates to what's going on in the world now mm. and what's been going on for the past few years i think many of us are kind of walking around almost in a daze of like, yeah. well, this is not, this is not what I signed up for. <laughs> Knocked a little sideways. You know? <laughs> yeah. And so um, that, that, those seem to be the two that have been coming up most mm. often in my work. And um, in all the people that I talk to throughout my days, you know, they come in with depression, anxiety, and PTSD, and all these uh, different diagnoses. And I mean, I can't speak with 100% certainty for 100% of them. But I can tell you that my intuition tells me that for most of them, it is some aspect of grief that has been unexpressed mm -hmm. that presents as depression, anxiety, PTSD, 
OCD, whatever it is. Yeah, it's got a very internal family systems flavor to it too of these parts of ourselves that are sort of banished to the nether realm. And something I talk about a lot is how our emotions are these indicators. They're like a compass within us that are trying to point us towards whether it's old wounds or current day things that are out of alignment that need to be adjusted. Anger is a great example of that. When I'm angry, that's a, it's an indicator that there's a boundary that should be set somewhere and hasn't been set. And so the, these parts of us that throughout our lives, whether that's, you know, the first time someone was a little boy and they were dancing and someone told them like, that's gay, don't do that. And this part gets locked away inside the psyche and it feels shame, guilt, and ultimately a sense of grief builds up for the life unlived, the gifts ungiven, the ways that we could have been free, but we shackled ourselves as a result of other people's judgments, opinions, or truly, you know, large scale traumas and the process of grieving and the process of internal family systems is this process of welcoming these parts of ourselves back home, welcoming, welcoming them back to the whole and integrated psyche. And one of the really interesting things, and I know you've witnessed this is people have an expectation that there will be like with psychedelics, obviously, we hear people go, I'm going to kill my ego. I'm going to go in and kill the ego. And that's not it. <laughs> like, it's just not. The ego comes back, first of all. So it's not, it's never gone. <laughs> like, you don't kill it and then you come back and there's no ego because then you wouldn't have any impetus to like go eat some food today or, you know, run away from a bear. And <laughs> there's a, which I think is a very, perhaps Western paradigm of like, we have to fight the things we don't like and we have to destroy them. But I find that there's this real beauty and grief can be a great access point to this of welcoming those parts and even those negative coping behaviors back into the psyche with love and with acceptance and understanding and going, hey, 10 year old Alex made that pattern. Wasn't the best pattern for 31 year old Alex but for 10-year-old Alex, it was actually pretty good for a little bit. It's just it's outlived its usefulness. And I'd love to hear just some of what you've witnessed in that sort of process of opening up grief and welcoming back the parts of ourselves which have been banished, maybe specifically as it relates to psychedelics or just generally with what you've witnessed, whether it's with coaching clients, integration, as they kind of open those doors in the mind and look in those dark corners and they see the little cowering child version of them that's in the corner crying. What do you witness when you see that? And how do people effectively navigate that grieving process? Mm. Well, I think the first story that comes to mind is my, my own story of this that happened recently, actually, when I was, um, and I've told, I've told this story so many times now that I, at some level, I'm like, why do I continue to even tell the story? Because it's not relevant anymore, you know? Um, when I was uh, about seven years old, I, I, I'm an only child, so no siblings. And very few friends. The friends that I did have were kind of like, not my choice, you know? It was just like, oh, the person in the neighborhood or... Our moms are friends, so we're we're friends. It's kind of like de by default. And I was not a very popular kid. I was very weird. <laughs> mm -hmm. 
and did not, you know, very misunderstood, did not know how to really socialize with people very well. And there was a rich girl in my class. I went to a private school. And so there were only like 15 girls in the classroom, but there was this rich girl named Jamie Meacham and her parents were very wealthy. And every birthday they would get her a stretch limousine for her birthday. Mm -hmm. And all the kids, all the girls would pile in mm -hmm. um, from the playground at the end of the day. And I never got invited. I mean, this, this happened like many, many times. Like, yeah, I was used to it by then, you know, mm -hmm. but I had another friend um, that also never got invited. And we happened to be friends because our moms were, our moms were friends. Mm -hmm. And, you know, for the most part, as long as I had some camaraderie, I was good. As long yeah. as like we could kind of be sad about not getting invited together, I was okay with it. And one year, I think it was like second or third grade, at the end of the school day, she starts to walk towards the limousine. And I said, well, wait, you know, where are you going? Your mom's not here. Where are you going? And she said, oh, I got invited. Mm -hmm. And I was legit the only girl in the class that did not get invited to go in the limousine. And I remember just that like sinking feeling of jealousy and envy and rage and confusion. I didn't understand why I was the only one. And that story lingered with me forever. And it was starting, I mean, throughout this process of healing, I started to notice it pop up with friends particularly when I wouldn't get invited to a party or an event that everybody else, everybody yeah, else got yeah. invited to, you know, quote unquote. Mm -hmm. um, and I would just, I mean, there was such anxiety when that would happen, like just overwhelming anxiety. And I did an ayahuasca ceremony back in April. And on the last night of this ceremony, the, Shipibo healer it was a mother, father, and a son all doing the, the ceremony for us. And the father was the last one to come to me. His name's Teo. He sat in front of me and he was singing the Icaros to me. And the medicine was kind of just, I just done another cup. So it was like starting to come up. Mm -hmm. And I saw this seven, eight-year-old girl crawl over to him. And he had these giant dragon wings. And there's a reason why dragon which i'll come back to in a moment but he had these big dragon wings kind of like draped over him you know mm -hmm. and i saw my little this little part of me crawl over to him and sit underneath one of his wings and kind of like look up at him like in awe you know yeah. like a little kid would be like whoa mm -hmm. what are you you know i don't know what you are but mm -hmm. you're crazy you know <laughs> and he as he was singing the ikros to me he was talking to her and he was telling her um, how loved she is and how special she is and and all of these different things and she was just like soaking it all up like she'd never had anybody that cool tell her that before mm -hmm. and as soon as he finished the ikaro I just started to weep and I I saw this little part of me kind of crawl back over to me mm -hmm. and jump into my arms and I just wrapped her up and just laid back and just cuddled her and cried for about three hours straight yeah. and, and integrated her and welcomed her back home. And when I got back from that trip, from that trip to Peru, everything was different. Like 
in the past where I would have been really anxious if I didn't have plans on a Friday night, mm -hmm. I was totally fine to not have plans on a Friday night for the yeah. first time in probably my entire life. I didn't feel left out. I didn't feel neglected, rejected, anything like that. It was just, oh, it's just a, it's just a quiet Friday night. I'm, yeah. I'm good with that. And as simple as that may sound to the listener, for me, it was so huge because for the first time I didn't feel anxious mm. about being alone. You know, it was like I could be alone and just be okay with it mm -hmm. and feel peace and actually enjoy it. Um, and I am quite introverted. <laughs> so now, now, um, you know, I'm just in just a deeper state of peace. But going back to what you said about um, killing the ego. A couple of years ago, when I was really starting to um, do more with mushrooms and try DMT and these other medicines, I kept getting a message over and over and over repeated to me in ceremony, which was, you don't slay the dragon, you ride it. Mm -hmm. You don't slay the dragon, you ride it. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, what I don't, what mm -hmm. does that mean? You know, and of course, there's, you know, mythological tales of entering the cave and slaying the dragon and coming back with the gold. But I mean, what's cooler than having a dragon as a pet? I'd rather have a dragon mm -hmm. than some gold, if you know what I'm talking about, you know. <laughs> um, and so that's really been the process for me has been learning to ride the dragon, mm -hmm. um, not to kill it, but to, but to tame it, you know, to befriend it. That's pretty mm -hmm. badass. So I, just saying. I love that. <laughs> yeah. It's one of the reasons archetypally I find the Hobbit to be what such a powerful story because in the Hobbit, you know, Bilbo goes in and he steals the treasure back from the dragon. He doesn't kill the dragon. And then the community together upon him leaving kills the dragon. So the dragon is not killed by the individual going into the dark cave. The individual goes in and rescues the precious thing to them from the dark cave where the dragon resides. And then the community, our connections, our love, our people around us kill, air quotes, the dragon. And I always found that to be a profound sort of twist on the classic story of killing the dragon. And I often give my clients the framework that the ego is like a team of horses. And we, the higher self, the conscious us is sitting in the carriage and the horses, if they're poorly trained, pull us into the ditch. And then us, the conscious us is like, why am I in the fucking ditch again? <laughs> Holy shit. It's the 10th time this week I've ended up in the ditch. Now our, our reaction can be to go, these horses need to be fucking punished. I need to beat these horses harder. But we don't realize that they're already frothing at the mouth, running as hard as they could be running, thinking they're being productive. And so reframing that way of, no, you train the horses through love and through a carrot and a pat on the head and understanding and knowing this horse, maybe it's the horse of anger. Oh, well, he's been running really hard. So he needs to have a rest for a while. And that sort of recontextualization is so important for doing that inner work and welcoming those parts back home because then the parts don't feel scared to come to the surface. If we're going in with our sword in hand, the parts are like, I'm not going over there. <laughs> that dude's mm -hmm. fucking crazy. He's gonna just gonna try to fight me. But mm -hmm. when we come in heart open, it allows for that bridge to be built. Mm -hmm. So next thing I'd love to talk about is sort of our uh mutual interest in psychedelics, let's say. And there's such a powerful tool in the toolkit 
And one thing I've been trying to do lately is illustrating both what we see done really correctly, but also things we see done that are less desirable and less useful. And we kind of just illustrated one, which is go in with a, a loving perspective rather than a kill the dragon perspective. But what are some of the other things you observe and perhaps even you've observed in your own journey of working with people and working with psychedelics that have been sort of less useful or non-productive? And then what are some of the things you've seen that are like, this is of highest impact, highest importance when this happens in a ceremony? Are you talking about from a facilitator standpoint? Yeah, yeah, I would say so. Although also from the client perspective too, I guess, in terms of what you've seen be effective for them. Hmm. Well, that's a great question. I feel like I could say a lot about that. The first thing that comes to mind is when talking about intention setting, hmm. I've started telling clients um, the difference between intention and expectation is intention is a prayer and expectation is a demand. Hmm. I love that. And there is such an element of humility um, that often stems it, you know, it's a, it's a result of the psychedelic experience. But as much as possible, I try to instill that sense of humility in my clients before they go into that experience to understand that when we've reached the end of our rope, you know, and when we're out of options, the only thing left to do is pray. Mm -hmm at times, right? Like the only thing left to do is just to like, hold out whatever it is that you're struggling with, with your head bowed, and your humble, your heart open and humbled. And just to say, I can't do it anymore. Mm -hmm. I can't do it anymore. And when we're able to approach these experiences with that humility, and with that humble heart, and to offer a prayer of gratitude first, for what we've already what we already have and what we've already learned and then to ask for what it is we want without a demand but with humility and full trust then when you come out the other side you can still be grateful for whatever it is you've received there's no let you don't feel let down or disappointed or anything like that but i do find that the clients who you know I, I still trust that it's part of their process, but for those that come out of the experience saying, ah, I thought it was going to be like this and it wasn't like that. And I feel mm -hmm. disappointed, you know, um, more often than not, you can kind of point back to, um, to that humble heart, you mm -hmm. know, what was the state of your heart going in? Mm -hmm. Um, in terms of, you know, what I, as, as a receiver of medicine, what I look for personally with any person that's going to serve me any medicine at all, whether it's rape or ayahuasca is, can I read? And I'm pretty, um, I have a pretty good read on people for the most part. Can I read this question? Are you doing this to serve yourself or are you doing this to serve me? And again, it comes back to humility. Um, and so if I get the read from anybody serving any medicine that they are serving it primarily to serve themselves, yeah. 
they will not be serving me medicine. <laughs> um, and of course, we can't always know, right? Because we can't read minds. But um, again, I, I typically have a pretty good read on people. Yeah. What do you feel like are some of those things you pick up on when that's the case, that someone's serving medicine to serve themselves? Like, what are some of the things you might notice beyond just like the general intuition of it? Um, if someone is uh, claiming to be the catalyst for someone else's healing, that's Classic. typically the biggest one. <laughs> um, also taking sovereignty and choice away from the client. Mm. It's a big one. If that facilitator or healer or medicine person or whatever claims to be the sole source of knowledge or truth, that's a big one. Um, not being, yeah, just not being forthright or honest about the process, you know, kind of keeping things hidden, maybe until the last minute. Oh, by the way, we're going to be doing this. No, nope, okay, I'm not interested. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, I think that that's always my biggest barometer. And that's what I tell mm -hmm. people who are interested in retreats and things like that as well is just like, ask a lot of questions about yeah. where the power lies. Because if the, if the facilitator believes that the power lies with them solely, then I wouldn't recommend you sit with them. <laughs> totally. I often communicate this to clients as we talk about the concept of surrender, which is such a big part of the medicine journey. And what I share with clients is it's absolutely not surrender to me, first and foremost. It's not even really surrender to the medicine. It's surrender to the truth of the experience you're having. Mm -hmm. So if that's anger, be angry. If that's sadness, be sad, but just surrender to the truth of whatever is coming up for you. And, uh, you know, similar to you, it is my biggest litmus test for a facilitator if I'm going to sit with someone of any caliber. It doesn't matter how many recommendations they have from people. It doesn't matter what their pedigree is. It's sort of like, are you here for my slash anyone's best good? Or are you here to serve and give the medicine in a way that serves you. And I look for, there's a couple of like funny nuanced ones that I think I'm really thinking of for the first time here. I love the questions part because it's always a telltale sign. Like if you ask 20 questions and they start to get annoyed with you, mm, hmm, interesting. Um, additionally, if they have to force their frame of reference on to you, so it's like, that difference between getting proselytized to by a Christian or something versus someone who comes to you and goes, well, I mean, like, here's my belief, but whatever works for you, that's a big one for me. It's like, do they need you to believe their belief set or are they cool working with your belief set, whatever it is? And even additionally, this is like a bonus. Do they try to communicate to you in a way that's useful for you rather than them needing to force their belief set? And of course, laughter as well. Like, do they smile? <laughs> do they have a generally calm, joyful presence? These are indicators of the work being done on semi-concurrent basis that they have some energy to them that you're going to be okay <laughs> mm -hmm. because they know, and I, I believe this fully, and I know you do as well. I know that at my deepest core, if I show up in alignment for the best good of the client, for the best good of their healing journey, things will go well. Like I have ultimate trust in that. Now, if I showed up for myself, which has definitely happened before in my 10 years of serving, like there's been moments for sure where I've showed up for myself, 
when I show up for myself, I don't have that same trust exactly. Cause then I'm like, Oh, shit might get a little sideways. Cause the alignment isn't there. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about some positives. So when you look at what you see really expert facilitators do, and this is just, you know, let's call this selfish inquiry here. Cause there'll be a subset of the audience that can relate to this. But for me, I, I love knowing these things. What do you witness in those expert facilitators where you're just like that thing they do is badass or that oh wow i can't believe they thought of that i should definitely start doing that what are some of those tools tips ways of being that you see that's a great that's a really good question i feel like it's like one of those interview questions that i have to sit and think about for a moment please take time I mean, I, I suppose the first thing that comes to mind is just their, their being, mm. I think is the biggest thing for me. I can't think of any specific, I mean, I've witnessed a lot of really cool stuff, you know, in, in different medicine ceremonies, but I think it always comes back to the facilitator and the way that they hold this hold themselves you know their character their state of being the energy their embodiment and the way that many of the expert facilitators that i've witnessed have a certain way of being that is larger than life mm. and yet and, and takes up space and yet never makes anyone feel small in yeah. their presence yeah that's perfect yes absolutely you know like people people around them although they may witness that person's bigness mm -hmm. still feel like they have a place in the at the at the table mm -hmm. as well and again i think you know maybe this is a theme for this uh podcast but again i think it goes back to humility the best facilitators that i've met that holds hold powerful space are always the most humble and i don't mean like you know, they shrug off a compliment, you know, if somebody says, oh, I really love the way that I really love that song you sang or whatever it is, they don't go, ah, I mean, that was, that was nothing. Cause then it's just, is it true humility? Yeah. No, but they, they say, thank you. And they continue to point the power to heal back to the client, mm -hmm. back to the, the one receiving the medicine. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I love that. Absolutely. Plus one to that. I also see often which again, is so interesting. Like, I don't know how to exactly communicate this perfectly in words, but I think the best way to put it would be like, no hesitation to help heal. And by that, I mean, I'm sure you've sat in ceremonies where like, it's the end of the ayahuasca ceremony. And especially if it's an overnight ceremony, then it's, you know, 6am, 7am, everyone's fucking tired. And there's that person that's still struggling and they're still deep in the medicine. And things have not cooled off for them at all. And they are just having a shit show. And, you know, any person who's in the facilitator, healer, shaman role could easily have the thought go through their mind like, oh, God damn it. Really? Sarah's still struggling right now. It's 6 a.m. How are you still tripping? But they don't. There's none of that. There's no hesitation of like, cool, show up for more service. 
okay, if it's six more hours, it's six more hours. Let's go. And this is that I think it ties into that humbleness piece of just like, I'm just here to be a conduit. So if there's more healing needed in this moment, there's more healing needed in this moment. I'm not better than, or I deserve to, now it's my turn to get out of here because I did my specified role. There's that true like giving spirit behind it. That's been something I've seen a couple of times in ceremonies where it is, mm -hmm. you know, the ceremony has been going on for 12 hours and it's the end. And there's that person who's still tripping, still struggling. And the facilitators just show up still. It's like respect, respect for that. So yeah, they seem to never tire yeah, in that way. It's like, like which, yeah, I might be exhausted, but I'm still here and I still yeah. feel great. <laughs> which, you know, from felt experience, and I've only had brief glimpses of this, let's say, as I've honed my craft, the more my channel is clear to the old hollow bone analogy of how to be optimally of service in a ceremony, there's an endless flow of energy coming from the universe through me for the benefit of that person. And so the more aligned I am, the more that I leave ceremony, like I have trouble sleeping often during a ceremony because I'm just like jazzed up. I'm like, woo, all right, let's go. That was great. What about, let's do another one. And it's a good indicator of that alignment being there because A, it means that energetically nothing is sticking to me because there's no, there's no burrs on me for it to get caught on. There's no resonances for it to get caught on because in that moment I was truly showing up in service and B I'm accessing that infinite flow of love that doesn't won't get tired, isn't going to tire, will sh continue showing up in service. So, yeah. So the other thing I'd love to hear about is, you know, oftentimes we do our best to prepare clients for a ceremony so they get the most out of it. What are the things that you see in your clients who they come in? And I know we talked a little bit about just coming in with that prayer attitude and not the sort of expectation attitude, but what are some of the things you witness in clients, whether it's personality traits, specific things they do to prepare that really cement a positive ceremony, not just in the moment of the ceremony, but also the result, you know, long after and what are some of those you know, traits, qualities, preparation steps, maybe even that you recommend to them that you see as just like, those are the things that allow the person to get what they need out of the journey? Mm -hmm. Well, the first thing is trust. And trust happens to be my word of the year. I mm -hmm. do a word of the year every year. I've been doing it for the past 13 years. And trust is my word this year. And that actually came to me in an ayahuasca ceremony last year um, down at Soltara. And the facilitator was talking and said, you know, trust is the foundation of any good relationship, whether it's with yourself, with the medicine, with the facilitator, whatever, with friends, with family, with spouses, whoever. And so what I try to instill in folks as they're coming into an experience is full trust. Um, and that doesn't mean you sign your power of choice away to me. It also means trusting yourself to know what's best for you and trusting the process and trusting that you're going to get out of this experience exactly what you ask for it may not be in the way that you ask for it, but it will always be what you ask for. 
may not understand it for six years, but one day you will. <laughs> and so I really try to instill that sense of trust. And I found with the clients that seem to get the most out of these experiences, they often are the most willing to kind of lay down their swords and their shields and their armor mm. and to just say, I'm here for it, whatever, whatever mm. this brings me, I'm here for it. And I have an open heart and I have an open mind and I'm going to sink into as much trust as possible. And I'm going to face whatever comes to me in this experience with courage and with trust that I'm going to find my way out of the darkness and that I can, I can do it. You know, I trust myself to do, do it. So I, I would say that trust is the biggest piece um, that I have found so far. And again, that doesn't mean signing away your power of choice to mean what you do. If it doesn't feel right, trust yourself, yeah, exactly. you know, um, but trust truly seems to be that foundational piece that gets, gets clients to have the deepest journeys and the most positive outcomes afterward. Yeah, trust is so huge because it really is that like, you know, back to the topic of prayer. It's like, do you believe that it's possible that something good would happen as a result of your truly humbly asking for assistance? And if you trust that, watch the ways the universe shows up for you because man, it's mm -hmm. fucking magical. If you don't mm -hmm. trust that, it's like there's an energetic break in the chain. It's one of my favorite conceptualizations of intention is in tension. Like I've thrown a rope to the thing that I want to pull towards me. But if that rope's all fucking tangled because of distrust and it's wrapped around like three other energetic trees, I'm not gonna be able to pull that thing towards me very effectively. So if I truly want to be intentional about my experience, having that trust truly and deeply straightens that that line and make sure that it's not caught on anything that uh yeah it, and also trust i think just gives such a for example when you trust a person you're you're open to them because you're not running the equation of what's wrong with this person are they going to screw me over are they going to do this are they going to do that you're just open you trust them so if they say something even if you disagree with it you're open to hearing it because you have trust for the person and the same thing happens to yourself and to the medicine it's like distrust is a lack of openness so how could you receive the messages you wanted and receive the insights you wanted if you're in that state of closed offness of course you're going to miss some of the stuff but if you're open mm -hmm. and trusting it's a, a wide open aperture on your mind eye camera to actually see the whole landscape and to allow in that extra light. So super important concept there. Mm -hmm. When you see people coming into ceremony, this is something I've really started to think about a lot in the last couple years as, you know, Michael Pollan's How to Change Your Mind and now it's a Netflix series and all of these inroads into psychedelics are being made so we're getting so many more people than ever who are like genuinely excited to come do psychedelics but a large swath of them i don't want to be too judgmental here but a significant portion of them have such a low level of education about good practices that they just kind of jump in head first to the pool and then they find out that the pool was one foot deep and they're like uh oh cracked my head that's not good and 
there's a ton of pitfalls that I witnessed, but I'm curious about what you see as the pitfall, especially for the, like, let's say the brand new person who maybe hasn't taken any psychedelics before, like, or maybe they've just microdosed or something. What are some of the ways that you see those people getting into trouble that they could avoid as they're new? <sighs> well, the first thing that comes to mind is <laughs> anytime and I mean I, the way that you kind of ask the question what's coming up in my mind is like the, the person who's really developing some passion around this work right mm -hmm. so they get really excited and they're like all right I'm going to do the thing right I'm going to try psychedelics first thing that comes to mind is doing too much too soon mm -hmm. and not giving any space for integration mm -hmm. um I've seen a lot of people, they have one really great experience, whether it's with me or at a retreat center or whatnot. And all of a sudden they're, they, they believe themselves to be an expert or a black belt, we'll say. And then I get a call from them, you know, two weeks later, oh, I did a, I did another large dose on my own and I had a bad trip. It didn't go so good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so I think it's like, and I mean, you know, um, in some ways there's kind of a there's this like sense of not admiration is not the word i'm looking for but like there's a part of me that uh i mean I'm definitely compassionate but there's another part of me that's just kind of like oh yeah yeah i know because like, you're excited yeah. and i like that you're excited you know and it's like kind of like a little kid that gets really into something yeah. you know you're like yeah okay i'm i'm really happy you're excited <laughs> let's just roll it back a little can't bit play in the street sorry not right now yeah exactly can't drive that race car yet let's <laughs> just let's put the training wheels on the bike first you know um so i think uh that sense of kind of like gusto i mean it's it's not a bad thing in and of itself but um just really taking time taking space um allowing each experience to unfold and look i i'm not kind of one of these people that's go, that believes you have to assign some sort of timeline to integration because all of life is integration every single moment of your life you're integrating something else and so i'm not one of these people that says oh you have to wait at 60 days like for some people 60 days is going to be too short for others it's going to be too long so you know do your next medicine journey when you feel when you truly feel that it's time but use discernment and use the tools that you have in your tool belt to set the intention set the proper space know what you're capable of handling before you just dive into a 10 gram journey by yourself um like and again humble heart you know if you if you really do come to these experiences with humility chances are you're not going to do a 10 gram journey by yourself for the first time. You're going to say, ah, uh, I've only done five and that was with a facilitator. Maybe I'll just do two and a half by myself, yeah. you know, like using proper discernment. Um, but we all learn the way that we learn mm -hmm. and we all uh, sometimes have to learn the hard way <laughs> and that's okay too. Just be safe, please. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They're having a facilitator on hand. I think it's so important that's one of the like few like harsh recommendations I make to people as they're starting is like, it doesn't have to be me. It doesn't have to be Sarah. It doesn't have to be, you know, whatever, but have someone there, yeah. even if it's just a friend, because yeah. 
there is just something I even ran into this recently. This was like maybe, I don't know, probably eight months ago now, but I dove into a personal journey. I was like, great, I'm going to take five grams of penis envy for those that don't know, that's a stronger variety of mushrooms. And I dove into my journey and, you know, two and a half hours in, I was having a problem and it wasn't like, I don't know. It was just so different than other times I've had bumpiness within a journey. And of course, every journey is so different that it's only ego that makes the expectations. Like, well, I've seen most things. So it'll probably be like, just like those and I'll be fine. It's like, no, you have no idea how many different ways you can have a journey. But I ended up in this place where I'm hitting this bumpiness. And, you know, I was having like people like, oh, I experienced death. But usually that death is like a very like beautiful dissolving into the universe. Or maybe it's even a little bit painful because you're resisting it. But like, oh, okay, I'm into the universe. Like, no, no, this is a very like literal physical. I was like, my heart is beating way too fast right now. I'm not enjoying that. And my arm feels numb. <laughs> hmm. Uh-oh. And so ultimately the journey was going call your younger brother, who's you know, my best friend in the entire world and lives nearby to me. And I was just like, no, no, but I'm fine. I'll use my breath work. And I'd use the breath work and like, nope, call your brother. It's like, oh, okay, fine. And of course I had to swallow the ego of being the older brother that serves psychedelics and da, 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 and all the list items that would make this like a strike to me. I was like, I got to call him. I called him. It's like, Hey, I'm having a real tough time. Do you think you could come over? And he's like, yes, absolutely. I'm on my way. I'm like, beautiful. Thank you. And as soon as I hung up that phone, I was good. I was fine immediately. Like he wasn't even there yet. And the lesson of the journey was like, Alex, you're bad at asking for help. It's like, oh. <laughs> fair enough. You're right. Heard. <laughs> of course, I still had him come over because I was very aware. I was like, if I call him back right now and say, hey, I don't need you, then I'm going to need you again. And I'm not going to play that yo-yo game. But just goes as an example of exactly what you're saying, which is when you're starting out, it's definitely not the time to do those big solo journeys. And even when you're experienced, having the humility to go, if things went sideways, what is my plan of action here? Because mm -hmm. that is ultimately showing respect for the medicine. It's showing respect for the journey. And I give this advice to people too. I'm an advocate that you can definitely use psychedelics recreationally if you do it correctly, but that most people don't necessarily do it correctly. But one of the ways you do it correctly, if you are going to use recreationally is have an escape plan, like have the plan laid out ahead of time. If you're at that music festival, great, that's beautiful. But if 20 minutes in mushrooms are telling you, go home, asshole, you, we got some work to do. Do you have a plan to get out of there? And are you surrendered to that type of journey too? Cause that could happen. Bad mm -hmm. trips are only when you persist <laughs> in the face of a clear directive from the mushrooms or a clear directive from whatever internally, and you're being told to go home and you're like, no, I'm staying. And then you're in the middle of a crowd and you're tripping too hard and not a good recipe. So it's that, that humbleness and that having a plan ahead of time, like, where's my support in this? What's mm -hmm. my plan if shit goes sideways? What's my plan if things go wrong? Mm -hmm. Whenever people, um, tell me, you know, I'm nervous. I'm nervous about this journey. I say, good, Same. good. And they say, well, what do you mean? I don't, I don't like this feeling. I say, I never worry about the people that tell me that they're afraid. Mm -hmm. I always worry about the people that tell me they're not afraid. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. you're doing great. Just be with that and trust that it's there to teach you something too. 
and that you have the courage to overcome it. You don't have to be in that fear to the place where you don't actually do the journey, mm. but allow that fear to be an indicator of your soul knowing that something big's gonna about to happen, right? Yeah. Like your and it's your ego going, oh no, uh, we don't want to do that. We definitely don't want to do this journey. Nope, cut it off. Don't want to do it. Good. Be afraid. Yeah. That's good. It's healthy. It's uh, <laughs> yeah, it's healthy. The ego throwing a temper tantrum on the way to go eat its vegetables. <laughs> it really doesn't want to eat this fucking vegetables. But I have what? to tell you, <laughs> this has come up a couple times um, since I've been facilitating. I had a client a few months ago um, in the middle of the ceremony, ripped off the eye mask, sits up, goes, I just had a conversation with my ego and he doesn't like you. <laughs> and I, I just, you know, cause he's deep in the medicine. I said, okay, you know, and I just let, I let it be. <laughs> and then at the end of the ceremony, we talked about that and I said, yeah, tell me more about that. He goes, yeah, he did not like you. And I said, well, of course, of course your ego didn't like me. Cause I'm there to teach you how to be a lion tamer. <laughs> like he's getting, he's getting tamed right now. And he doesn't like being tamed. He wants to run amok and run your life and continue to have you drinking a bottle of wine every night, you know, like, of course he doesn't like me, but I just really, I got a really good laugh out of that. And it's come up a couple of times actually with other clients where they say, yeah, it was really weird. I was having a conversation with my ego and they were telling me that you were bad and that you weren't here to help us. And I said, well, of course your ego is telling you that because we're <laughs> learning tough. to tame your ego and ego does not like that. It's like, totally. please tell her to stop. <laughs> you know? Absolutely. Yeah, it's so funny. It's why priming before the journey is so important too, because like just knowing that that can come up helps the person. And you know, something I often say is like those emotions that bubble before ceremony are actually the biggest blessing. That's the beginning of the surfacing of the emotions that you've maybe cut off access to. And so when they show up, it doesn't mean you need to be excited about anxiety. You don't need to be jazzed up about being depressed as hell the week leading into ceremony. But you can at least honor those emotions as the first tinglings of the things that you're going to get the blessing to work on in the journey. And just knowing that, that frame of mind coming in makes things smoother because then it's not, again, back to the earlier topic, it's not adversarial. It's not me versus. It's, oh, cool, this is coming up. Hey, you go, thank you for stomping around and kicking up some mud from the bottom because now I could get to work on this mud. So thank yeah. you. I appreciate yeah. it. <laughs> I always ask people in our, in our preparation work, one of the first things I ask is what's present for you right now? Hmm. Because, you know, and, and you know this, um, but once you say yes to a ceremony, that's when it begins, hmm. whether you're, whether you've taken the medicine or not. Hmm. And so I always start by asking people what's present for you right now, what emotions are present, what's, what side of you is showing its face, hmm. you know, is it your anger? Is it your uh, addiction? Is it your frustration? Is it your procrastination? What's coming up for you right now? Mm. That's likely the thing that's ready to be looked at and healed. Mm. And we always start there. Always start there. Mm. So let's talk a little bit about integration. What are the things that you find really effective in integrating a plant medicine journey? Let's say, let's say I just came out of this huge journey and, you know, I'm going to paint the most like... <laughs> over the moon client of all time here. I came out of the journey and everything's got to change. And oh my God, things are going to be different now. And wow, I, I realized all this stuff. Like where does the rubber meet the road after the journey? And how, how would you take a client 
you know, maybe like that or maybe even different and help them to begin the process of actually integrating so that the psychedelic journey wasn't just a cool roller coaster that they rode while they're in the theme park and then they leave the theme park and only go back once a year. Yeah. That's an interesting question because again, I think integration is a everyday process. It's a moment to moment process. And so for the, the people that are feeling really good, you know, they're like gung ho about brand new life and nothing's ever going to be the same. And I'm a brand new human. Uh, I always just tell them to just be with that, be with that because for many people, they haven't ever given themselves the space to grieve, to be mad, mm. to feel, you know, it's like, we just take some pills and we eat some food and we watch some Netflix and we just numb out from all of it. And for many people, I, I have found for mo many people, they don't believe they're worthy of joy because it's but they've had so many years of despair mm. and sadness and unexpressed emotion and numbness and so when they feel that joy and that like gung-ho spirit the first thing i just tell them is just be with that don't anticipate when it's going to change don't worry about when it's going to go back to normal for you because that is akin to being on a vacation and just thinking about when you're going home the whole right. time like you're just wasting your vacation like if you're in budapest be in budapest yeah. like don't don't be back in oklahoma worrying about the job that you got to go to the next mm -hmm. day like be there and so the first thing i tell people when when they come out and they're like oh my gosh it was just oh, i feel so different and i everything's great and i don't feel like i have anything to work on i just say great be with that mm -hmm and and offer it gratitude and continue to remind yourself and and you know don't cling to it either don't try to force it to stay hmm. because in the very act of trying to force it to stay what you're saying is this is not my natural state i have to cling to this thing hmm. whereas if you recognize that this is your natural state underneath all the bullshit, right then there's no pushing it away or clinging to it just is and so i always tell people just to be with whatever is and to notice, um, I had a really interesting download actually a few months ago where I was thinking about this idea of manifestation and what manifestation actually is and mm -hmm. all of this. And what came to me is that manifestation is typically the act or is um, not typically, but it's, it's as simple as the act of noticing. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that is when we start to notice our environment and notice synchronicities and notice these whispers from the universe and these winks from God, then we can kind of put the picture. We, at that point we have the awareness and then we create from that place. Whereas if we're just walking through our lives, completely oblivious to whatever's going on around us, then we become a victim to our environment. Hmm. Um, and so going back to client work and integration, just noticing, noticing synchronicities, noticing hmm. those winks from God, and those little, you know, nudges from the universe, like, hey, I got you, right. you know, um, and then also to say, you know, let's put in, let's talk right now about what are you going to do when you start to feel those old patterns and behaviors mm -hmm. come back, mm -hmm. because inevitably they will, they always do, doesn't mean that you're lost forever and that this was a waste, but what are we going to do when those things do come back? Let's put a plan in place now so that when it happens, you're not in crisis mode and trying to figure it out in this fight or flight survival state, you know? I love the bit about noticing because noticing is 
driving a positive spiral of trust. And this is the essence of like true gratitude, not forced, you know, fake gratitude journal every day, but I don't really feel it. I'm just writing down. I like my coffee every day and it doesn't actually mean anything to me. But like when you genuinely notice the positive things that are conspiring in your favor, you start to build the trust with the universe. And back to that earlier topic, as that trust increases, that flow comes through more cleanly, it seems. So mm -hmm. I love that as a concept. And the, so I want to take the opposite client. Let's say that I came out of a journey and nothing's clear to me and I'm overwhelmed and I feel like there's too many things and I feel disconnected and I feel like I'm not grounded. What's the integration for that person? Step one is eat a cheeseburger. Yeah. Always. <laughs> for real though, um, for I, I find that for folks that have a hard time grounding, um, believe it or not, people that are vegan have a much more difficult time grounding, um, like pretty massively <laughs> a lot of times. Um, so uh, eating a really hearty meal is like, if somebody's having a really hard time grounding, whether they're vegan or not, I typically encourage them to eat like root vegetables, potatoes, have a good stew, have a burger, do some human things, you know? Um, and then <laughs> it's funny that it's kind of the same answer regardless of the client, but it just, again, going back to noticing and just being with the confusion, the doubt, the distrust, the angst or the frustration or the feelings of being let down or disappointed um you know a lot of times <laughs> i call uh, mushrooms specifically but i think most psychedelics i would call draino for the soul and it's like it just cleaned out these gunky pipes that have been clogged for lord knows how long and it's like you just took a gangrene gangrenous wound and just cl cleansed all that stuff out of it and now it's just this raw open to the air gaping hole that just a slight breeze makes it hurt you know makes it ache and so there's sometimes some tending to that you know and just like i mean like truly like nurturing and cleansing that wound and sometimes that that manifests as confusion or as frustration or whatever and it's like okay maybe you've never had a relationship with frustration before maybe you've never learned how to ride that dragon you've been trying to kill it off your whole life so how do we how do we still love ourselves when we're in that state how do we still meet ourselves meet ourselves where we are and notice what's coming up without judgment but with full compassion and tend to that wound whatever that wound is um learn to be in right relation with it rather than constantly warring with it or trying to stuff it away you know yeah i love it and i love that you gave the through line there of notice as well because i think that similarly when we come out of a journey and we're raw sometimes the experience we're having is this beautiful increased sensitivity and awareness to okay well that person is like fucking lemon juice on my wound huh okay what things should I start to think about in relation to that person, that situation, that thought pattern that I have. 
sometimes that rawness is really a gift because it allows you to be sensitive enough to actually pick up on things that, you know, maybe normally it would have taken you a month of building up resentment and then you explode at the person once a month. They're like, why do I do that? It's like, well, now you have the sensitivity to notice. So I love that similar thread between both the super positive journey. It's like, notice, notice synchronicities, notice things that are beautiful and the super difficult journey. Okay. Notice the things that are hurting. Notice where those are, tend to them. If you're tending to your wound, well, I'm not going to let Sarah pour freaking lemon juice in it for the third time this week. If I want that wound to heal, like I'm going to go, Hey, no more lemon juice, please. Thanks. Yeah. You know, I think one of the biggest insights over the past six months for me has been uh, this idea of like the, the victim archetype. And for me, noticing is a state of empowerment. When we notice things, we're actually um, empowering ourselves to follow tracks and to pick up on clues and to uh, pay attention and to listen and then to act from that place. Versus when we're not noticing, again, we just kind of get tossed by the world. You know, we, we're just in a little life raft in the middle of the ocean getting tossed by waves. Whereas if you're, if you're actually paying attention to the wind and the, you know, the currents and things like that, then you can navigate through those storms. Mm. And this idea of the victim mentality or the victim archetype is so sinister because it shows up in ways that you would not expect. Mm. And I think that even the act of noticing can shift that victim mindset into Mm. one of empowerment. And so that's kind of what I mean, going back to the manifestation comment is like, when we notice, then we do truly become a co-creator of our life with the universe, with God, with, with life itself versus not paying attention, not really caring and just, eh, well, whatever happens, happens. And then we complain about it later. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's that, uh, you know, back when I was training martial arts regularly, there's an old saying that, which is where the eyes go, the body goes. And so in that specific context, it used if you're like trying to throw someone, or you're trying to move them, you move their head because wherever the head goes, the whole body tends to follow. And it's similar within and after a journey that you perhaps picked up a telescope and you're pointing at certain things. And so if you pointed at the things you want, the positive things happening, and you begin to notice those, well, you're going to be able to see more in that direction and you'll orient your whole being by virtue of your focus towards those things and similarly and i think this is like the stumbling block that can occur but it's not that you don't notice the negative things it's you have to notice the negative things from a positively referenced mindset oh wow that person really crosses my boundaries okay cool what can i do about that so that's noticing in a positive way versus oh that person is always mean to me that's noticing in a negative way. So the manifestation cycle is driven by virtue of where your lens of focus is actually pointed because Mm -hmm. you just get more of that, but you can still focus like this, I think is the nuance of it. You can focus on the negative, but it has to be from that lens of there's some, the reason this hurts is because there's something I can do about it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What are my decisions? It's like a state of proactivity versus reactivity, mm-hmm. like noticing. And then I go, oh, wait, huh? I see what's happening here. Okay. Well, I have a boundary to set. And from now on, I'm going to set that boundary versus reactivity where it happens and you go, well, you know, screw you, <laughs> whatever. Exactly. Right. 
you fight back um, from a place of reactivity. And again, kind of coming back to that kind of that victim archetype, you know, so present. I think, especially in the world right now, it's so present, this victim archetype. And in, in many cases, by no fall of our own, but the good news is we have an opportunity to notice that, yeah. to make different choices, you know, once we do, once we're able to. Yeah. Yeah. It's something I often say to people, you know, I've gone through being sexually assaulted myself. And one of the really key nuances to that situation is it may genuinely have not been your fault. There are things that happen to us in our life that are not our fault. However, the moment it has stopped and you've gained now awareness, it is now your responsibility always without exception. Mm -hmm. Anything that has happened to you is now your responsibility. So what are you going to do about that responsibility? Are you going to make different decisions? Are you going to take proactive steps? Or are you going to wallow in the overwhelmingness of it? Well, mm -hmm. the trick is when you start to take those proactive steps, you gain the empowerment over the situation and you gain the agency within your own life focus. So then you can truly be that positive person. That's a beacon. Even when things are crazy, you're like, yeah, but I know I'm doing my part to make things better. So then you feel good even within the storm. It's very Viktor Frankl, Man's Search for Meaning. It's like, even within the concentration camp, there's a couple of motherfuckers that are just doing their best day in, day out, being good people, trying to bring joy. And I guarantee that they went the rest of the way of the rest of their short live at that point, feeling not excited maybe, but at least feeling aligned, going, I'm doing all I can right now. And if I'm doing all I can right now, in the direction of the positive of the good that's enough that's mm -hmm. enough for mm -hmm. the personal level so wrapping up here with some last questions what's the thing that you are working on right now that you are the most excited about that just has you like you jump out of bed in the morning you're like holy shit this thing that i get to work on mm -hmm. i have the blessing of working on what is that thing for you Honestly, it it's just the facilitation work right now. Um, same. It's it's been very same for you. Yeah. Is that what you said? Yeah, it's been so busy, um, and I mean, I'm doing sometimes a couple ceremonies in a week, and uh, ha that's been going on for the past you know s few months, I suppose, and there's honestly nowhere else I'd rather be. My birthday was last weekend and I had a ceremony that day and I was like, yep, this is how I want to spend my birthday. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't care about anything else, mm -hmm. you know? Um, it really does. There's, there's like such a potent, and, and I mean, I don't know if you feel this Alex lately, but there's something within the past few weeks, something has shifted collectively mm -hmm. and I feel when I'm sitting in ceremony with people, it's like, it's not just one person's life. It's like, I can almost see, and I've had visions of this in the past, but I can almost see that it's like, we're walking up to somebody and going like, boop, yeah. and like turning on their light switch, boop, you know, like, boop, now you're on, boop, now you're on. And to see people's lives shifting in such radical ways and to see people take control and to use their gifts and to 
heal and to be of service to others and to, you know, awaken to their superpowers and all of these different things is just the most beautiful gift that I could ever receive mm -hmm. to be a part of that. And just to have one small, one small role where I go, boop, <laughs> and I'm not even doing anything. They did it on their own. I'm just sitting there. <laughs> just know? letting them know they have a light switch. Exactly. <laughs> Yeah. Just like, Hey, do you know, you have a light switch. Yeah. Let's click it on. <laughs> yeah, totally. Um, it really is like the most joy I've ever, I mean, there's, I feel like I'm right now. I feel like I'm walking the path of my Dharma in a way that I have never felt before in my life. And it just feels so good and everything flows so beautifully. And, um, and even when I'm exhausted, I feel full and I feel like I can just keep going just like we were talking about earlier, you know, even when I'm exhausted, even when I haven't had a day off in three weeks straight and I've been doing a road trip around the country and taking calls literally from nearly sunup to sundown for four days straight while I'm driving and doing ceremonies in between, I still somehow have space for more. Hmm. Um, and so that's my answer is uh, just that, just this. Just this. Yeah. Same. I often get asked, Alex, how are you good with just like meditating for five or six hours during a ceremony? I'm like, are you kidding? Like, if I could design my fucking dream life, this was it. Like, yeah. you look over at me during a ceremony, I got the stupidest grin on my face and I'm just like blissed out. I'm like, I get to sit here and be witness to this person's healing them processing yes. their deepest, darkest parts, them maybe crying for the first time in years. And I get to be here for that. Mm -hmm. And I, I get paid for it. What? <laughs> Who did There's I trick a... for this position? <laughs> yeah, it's, um, I cry almost every single ceremony mm -hmm. and I cry the day after and mm -hmm. I, and it's not, it's not sadness. I mean, sometimes it is, but it's, it's pure joy. Like I, I just, I sit there and I think about people's lives and their children's lives and their spouses' lives, their parents' lives and their coworkers' lives and all the people whose lives they're going to touch because they made a sovereign choice to take their life back into their own hands. And I just get to be witness to it and to walk alongside them and hold a, hold a lantern and say, it's safe over here. You can come over here. Come on, let's go. You know? And I, I cry every single time and it's what a gift. I mean, it's like you're witnessing the most beautiful piece of art ever created in that moment, every single time. It's like, this is the most beautiful love story I've ever witnessed every single time. Yep. Yeah. Those tears are amazing. It's the mm -hmm. uh, tears are the prayer of the parts of us that don't have words to describe what's happening in the moment mm -hmm. and the positive moments. It's because what's happening is so fucking beautiful. I'm like, I couldn't fully explain this to someone if I tried, like it is what you were saying earlier about the nodes of light coming online and the imagery of like each person that sits through this self-investigation. It doesn't, to be clear, it doesn't have to be with plant medicines. There's a lot of different ways to do this, but they sit through this process. They have the courage, the bravery to go in and really look at their shit. It's like this pebble that got thrown into a pond and those ripples are rippling out and hitting shores that we can't even fucking see right now. 
it's the mm-hmm. cashier at the grocery store who was depressed and was thinking about killing themselves. But then they run into a person that just sat through a ceremony who's just beaming and is just like genuine, present and loving to them. And it's like, we don't see all the ways those ripples expand out, nor do each of the people that sit, but every person plays a part in that and just honoring that courage that people have to turn inward. Cause it's hard. It's not easy. It's not like, Oh, I'll just turn inward today. It's like, no, it fucking hurts sometimes. Yeah. Not super it's fun. work yeah and it's work and it feels like oh shit this time i'm really doing it this time i'm going crazy or this time i broke something and that's okay because we can honor the courage it took to do it and it ultimately is the truest thing that signals that someone loves themselves like no mm-hmm. matter what the felt experience of it is by virtue of them putting themselves there to work on themselves truly they love themselves at the core, even if they don't believe it yet. Some piece of them is bubbling up going, I love you, motherfucker. We're gonna go, mm-hmm. we're gonna go to work. We're gonna get some mm-hmm. stuff going. So just witnessing that is like, ah, yeah, that. Yeah. yeah. There's a, you know, when I was even when I was young, I used to always always think to myself, everyone loves a good redemption story. Like mm-hmm. I love a good redemption story. I love watching the underdog overcome like David and Goliath. Mm-hmm. I love redemption stories. And I also love love stories. And it's like, you're watching the greatest redemption story ever told and the greatest love story ever told mm-hmm. each time you witness a ceremony. It's like, yes, yes. You were, you were once the underdog and here you are toppling Goliath, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. Beautiful. Well, where can people find you? Where's the best place to get in touch if they do want to sit in a ceremony, let's say, or they just want to be in contact with your work? I know you're doing a bunch of dope stuff, even just beyond our specific ceremony connection here. So where can people find you? Where's the best place to connect? And yeah. Yeah, my website or my Instagram website is Miss M.S. Sarah Hannah. That's H-A-N-N-A-H dot com or miss sarah hannah on instagram beautiful go follow her if you haven't already on instagram you fucks and get it together what's wrong what's wrong with you that you aren't already following sarah? <laughs> come find me <laughs> yeah beautiful thank you so much for being on i appreciate you thank you so much alex this was so much fun appreciate yeah. it All right. Well, I hope you enjoyed that episode. If you did, please give us a five-star review if you're reviewing on iTunes. And I think Spotify might even now have a review system. So deeply appreciate it if you drop in on either of those. You can find all the links to Go Find Sarah in the show notes. So just click the more info button and you'll be able to see all that. And as always, we deeply appreciate it if you share this episode out with a friend or family member. That really is the fastest way to help grow the show. And, you know, you can check me out on Instagram at Alexander Diesel if you would like great place to follow me and get up to date on any new offerings i'm coming out with so much love everyone i hope you have a beautiful week and i will talk to you soon